Our speaker today is Carly Gardner. Carly is an ICU-experienced clinical consultant. She focuses on partnering with clients to help them achieve their outcomes and goals. She's implemented early mobility and pressure injury prevention programs across the country. During the webinar today, Carly will include research and evidence-based practices in patient mobility and pressure injury prevention. You'll be introduced to early mobility concepts and rationale, as well as the effects of early mobilization on improved skin outcomes, specifically focusing on bed and support surface technology integration. Carly will focus the webinar on the adult critical care population, but she'll also include mobility and pressure injury prevention guiding principles that span the continuum of acute care. Welcome, Carly. Thanks so much for the introduction, Julie, and thanks everyone for joining us today. Before we get started, I'd like to just go over some objectives for today's presentation. Um, our first objective is describe pressure injury risk related to immobility in the critical care population. You know, we know that there is an increased pressure injury risk in patients who are immobile, and this is compounded when they're critically ill. So we're going to explore that a little bit. Our second objective is discuss integration of technology into pressure injury prevention. Um, and so most of you are probably very familiar with at least some best practices for pressure injury prevention in the ICU, like turning, microclimate management, and things like that. And today, we're going to discuss how we can best utilize technology to help us accomplish those prevention goals. Um, third is define and describe the problem of immobility in the critical care setting. Um, we're going to spend some time unpacking the complications and consequences that can occur if we don't promote early mobility in the ICU and some of the benefits of mobility as well. And lastly, discuss technology strategies to assist with implementation of early mobility. We know that early mobility in the ICU can be a unique challenge with some definite barriers. So we're going to discuss how you can use technology to make that process easier and more approachable for you and your colleagues. I think a great place to start here is um, with the definition of a pressure injury. So if you'll bear with me, I do want to read you this definition. A pressure injury is localized damage to the skin or underlying soft tissue, usually over a bony prominence or related to a medical or other device. The injury can present as intact skin or an open ulcer and may be painful. The injury occurs as a result of intense or prolonged pressure or pressure in combination with shear. The tolerance of soft tissue for pressure and shear may also be affected by microclimate, nutrition, perfusion, comorbidities, and condition of the soft tissue. This is NPIAP, National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel's definition of a pressure injury, and I'm sure that a lot of you may already be familiar with this, and you may also be familiar with the staging of pressure injuries, which, as you know, includes stages one through four, as well as deep tissue injury and unstageable pressure injuries. But now also includes mucosal membrane pressure injuries and medical device-related pressure injuries. And those new additions came in 2016 with the change in terminology from pressure ulcer to pressure injury. So, you know, there may be some of you still wondering why that change was made. And it all relates back to the etiological definition of um, actually a stage one versus stage two and other types of pressure injuries. So what happened was the MPIP had a um, consensus conference 
and it was discussed that um, the etiology of the wound as it relates to pressure injury stage one and two was inconsistent with the terminology. And so, you know, what, what I'm saying is that with a stage one pressure injury, we don't have open skin. And so, you know, we still have intact skin, but that skin is red um, and non-blanchable. And so what that means is we don't, by definition, have an ulcer. And so for that reason, whereas we move forward with other stages of pressure injuries and we do have an open ulcer or an open wound, you know, ulcer would be a better descriptor. It was just determined that ulcer wasn't the best descriptor for all to encompass all the stages of pressure injury, which is why, you know, the group decided to make the change from injury to ulcer, or rather from ulcer to injury, I'm sorry. So now let's move on to discussing risk in the critical care population. I'm sure that most of you are familiar with the Braden Risk Assessment Scale for Pressure Injuries. Um, it's used in most care areas, both in the U.S. and a lot of places around the globe. Um, it was developed in 1988 by Barbara Braden and Nancy Bergstrom, and it still is the gold standard for PI risk assessment. So, you know, many of us at the bedside will look at this scale to tell us simply if our patient is at risk or not. But really, there's so much more to it than that. You know, sure, the scale will tell us if the patient is at risk, um, and it will also tell us to what extent they're at risk. But one of the best features of the scale is that it actually breaks down that risk by specific risk factors that are known to cause pressure injuries. So when it is scored correctly, there can be valuable information to glean from doing the risk assessment. And then once you've learned what risk factors your patient is particularly prone to, you can actually use that information to customize and implement interventions that are more targeted for that particular patient to help mitigate that risk and prevent pressure injury development. So now let's take a closer look at what some of those risk factors are. The Braden chart that you see on the right side of your screen may be a little bit difficult to read, but you can see on the left side that I've pulled out the six major risk factors for pressure injuries that are scored as part of a complete Braden risk assessment. So these are sensory perception, moisture, activity, mobility, nutrition, and friction and shear. For today's presentation, we're just going to focus on three of those and how we might be able to utilize some technology to help mitigate risk. And so the categories that we're going to focus on for today's purposes are moisture, activity, and mobility. So let's begin with moisture. This is the Braden scoring breakdown for the moisture category. I just want to point out, in any category of the assessment, a lower score indicates a higher risk for pressure injury development. So I'm going to kind of walk through these um, scores and their descriptors. You know, one point would be constantly moist. So this would be your most at-risk category for moisture, meaning the skin is kept moist almost all the time by perspiration, urine, etc. Dampness is detected every time the patient is move or turned. Next, we have very moist, which would be two points. Um, the skin is often but not always moist. We're still doing um, linen changes, but only about once a shift. Occasionally moist will be three points, meaning the skin is occasionally moist, requiring an extra linen change sometimes. 
And then rarely moist will be four points. This, um, the skin is usually dry. The linen change only requires changing at routine intervals, you know, for example, whenever you bathe your patient or whatever your facility's um, typical process is for that. So we know moisture is a particularly big problem, especially in the critical care population, due to the acuity and nature of the illnesses of the patients in this space. So for example, you know, in the ICU, we're used to seeing lots of sepsis. Many of those patients are going to have ongoing fevers, which can lead to diaphoresis or sweating and moisture. You know, additionally, these patients are generally going to be more prone to things like incontinence and other factors that can cause moisture to become a big problem for them. Some of you guys may already be thinking of interventions that you can do to help mitigate moisture-related pressure injury risk for patients in the critical care population. I do want to stop and highlight the concept of microclimate here, since it's frequently misunderstood. So what you're looking at there is the S3I, or Support Surface Standards Initiative, definition of microclimate. For those of you who may not be familiar with S3I, S3I is a committee formed out of the MPIAP, and one of the standards that they have created as a group is a list of MPIAP approved terms and definitions. And that basically just helps all of us to get on the same page about support surface related terminologies and avoid some of the marketing biases that kind of come innately with the support surface industry. So S3I and MPIP will define microclimate as something which refers to the temperature and humidity at the support surface body interface. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what that means and what it doesn't mean, um, just to unpack that just a bit. So what this does mean is that um, this is the heat and moisture that exists in the tiny space that you cannot see where the patient's skin comes in contact with the mattress, for example. Everyone has a microclimate, but a poorly maintained microclimate can certainly increase risk for pressure injuries. What this does not mean is microclimate is not pooled moisture created by things like an incontinent episode, for example. Some support surfaces are designed to provide powered microclimate management for your patients, but the only way really to mitigate excessive moisture that's caused by things like incontinence or other pooled moisture is to just clean it up promptly and provide the best care that you can. When I mentioned support surfaces that are designed to help manage microclimate, I was actually referring to a feature called low air loss. The S3I definition of low air loss is a feature of a support surface that uses a flow of air to assist in managing the heat and humidity microclimate of the skin. So there's a common misconception that a surface that provides low air loss must be an air mattress so to speak, and that is inaccurate. There are many types of low air loss surfaces on the market, and they use different technologies to redistribute pressure, but all of them use air to manage the patient microclimate through that airflow within the mattress, um, and it's under the cover, generally. 
So patients who will benefit most from a low air loss support surface are going to be those who are at risk for breakdown specifically related to moisture. So if you can recall, think back on how your patient scored on that moisture subcategory in the Braden Risk Assessment. For example, a patient who maybe scored low, like a one or a two in that subcategory, would be considered constantly moist or very moist, and that patient would certainly benefit from a low air loss type of technology. I've included a couple pictures here to help show you how low air loss works within the surface. Remember, by definition, we're just talking about airflow within the surface, and it's just enough to cool and dry that tiny space between the skin and the mattress cover. So it's not like a hockey table that's blowing air outside the cover onto your patient's skin. You know, one way to think about it is if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever been camping, maybe, and you're sleeping in a hammock, and there's, there's going to be air that's flowing underneath that hammock. And if it's cool and it's dry, like maybe in the fall, it would cool you from below the surface that you're relying on, in this case, the hammock. And that is the effect on your personal microclimate. In this example, you know, maybe you're a little bit too cool and you prefer to insulate your skin some with something like a sleeping bag. But in the case of a critically ill patient, that ambiently cooled air flowing underneath and toward the mattress cover would help to regulate the patient's microclimate in a really helpful way. And so the picture that you see at the bottom here is showing the inside of the Stryker Isolibrium support surface, which is designed specifically for that ICU population. As you can see in the picture, um, it uses AirPod technology for pressure redistribution, and that pressure redistribution is patient-specific but it also provides that built-in low air loss therapy, which is gonna allow for the air to flow freely between those pods and move up toward the top of the surface where the patient's skin would be touching it. And this makes it easy to offer low air loss for every patient in that ICU unit without having to deal with you know, adding any additional pumps or the difficulty of moving a critically ill patient you know, from one surface to another, you know, quote, specialty surface. So now let's take a look a little bit at the activity and mobility risk categories. Activity and mobility are very closely related in terms of adding um, to a patient's risk for pressure injury, especially in the critical care population. So let's take a look at the scoring for both of those on Braden scale, and then we'll talk a little bit more about early mobility in the ICU and how you can use mobility to mitigate risk um, as far as activity and mobility are concerned. So with activity, one point, which would be your lowest score or most at risk, would be for a patient who is bed fast, meaning they're totally confined to the bed. Um, for two points, the patient would be chair fast, meaning they do have the ability to um, walk, but it is severely limited, or it actually could be totally non-existent, um, they may be able to bear their own weight, but they definitely would probably need help to get, you know, to a chair or a wheelchair. So many of your ICU patients are probably going to be either bed fast or chair fast. Um, three points would be a patient who walks occasionally. So occasionally during the day, um, but usually for a short distance, that could be with or without assistance. Um, they're going to spend most of 
your shift either in the bed or in the chair. And then um, for four points, your patient with the least risk would be someone who walks frequently, meaning they walk outside the room a couple of times a day um, or inside the room at least every couple of hours when they're awake. Here is the uh, scoring for mobility. So um, let's walk through that just a little bit. One point, again, your most at-risk patient is completely immobile. Um, they don't make even slight changes in their body or extremity position without assistance. Um, you know, maybe that's your patient in the ICU who is on a paralytic or heavily sedated. Um, still may be a lot of your patients. Um, very limited two points is your patient who does make slight changes in their body or extremity position, but they're not able to do that frequently or make significant changes by themselves. They're not like rolling over in the bed on their own. Um, slightly limited mobility, three points. That is your patient who is able to make frequent, although slight changes in their positions, um, and they can do that fairly independently. Um, and then, you know, with, with no risk for a mobility-related issue would be your patient with no limitations um, at four points who does make those frequent changes um, without assistance. And so, um, as you've probably noticed or you're already aware, a lot of patients in the ICU, especially when they're recently admitted, or um, potentially more unstable patients are going to be likely to score lower in both of these categories for activity and for mobility. So it may seem like, okay, mobility is not the priority in the critically ill patient, especially one who's got severe respiratory complications and is requiring ventilation. Um, but the reality is that studies show that these risk factors should absolutely be addressed early on in the ICU stay, um, and that's in order to promote faster and more efficient recovery from their acute illness. Um, so let's take a look at that a little bit more in depth. So this brings us to the concept of early mobility. Um, here's a couple of published descriptions of what early mobility really is, um, and I'll read those to you. Um, the first one, mobilization activities that begin immediately upon stabilization of hemodynamic and respiratory physiology. And then another descriptor is that it is frequently occurring 24 to 48 hours after ICU admission, hence the term early mobility. Um, so, you know, as you can see, Early mobility is the mobility process that's going to be uniquely and specifically designed to assist and accommodate the needs of the ICU population. So while we know, you know, mobility is a really big focus in a lot of other care areas within the hospital, um, particularly where patients are more um, active and mobile, it used to be kind of the common thought process, and, and even when I started in, in nursing, that patients in the ICU, oh, these people are really sick, they just need to rest. Um, and we need to kind of leave them be. But what we've learned um, through research is that really the opposite of that is true, and um, that these patients will heal faster and will heal better if we begin that mobility process much earlier, as soon as we can. So early mobility was kind of born to meet that need. 
Um, and, you know, clearly mobilization, we can't do it exactly the same way or by the same process as we would in a more ambulatory population, say elsewhere in the hospital, um, med surge or step down. Um, and so that is the reason that we have an ICU-focused process, which we call early mobility. So now I'm going to walk you through some um, facts from public research, or I'm sorry, published research studies um, <clears throat> as it relates to the early mobility process and some that have been successfully implemented um, within ICUs in the United States. So um, basically studies are showing that patients who receive early mobility interventions, number one, had improved outcomes in general compared to the standard of care. They're getting out of bed earlier, five days versus 11 days in one study um, that I read. They're showing a decreased incidence of ICU delirium, which if you spent a lot of time in the ICU space, we know is a really, really common problem, especially as patients are vented and sedated for lengthy periods of time. Um, they're having shorter ICU lengths of stay overall. So in this particular study, it was five and a half days, um, which is significantly less than 6.9 prior to the implementation of early mobility. Um, you know, a lot of people will say that, you know, for every day in, you know, on a event or in the ICU that you're going to spend a certain number of days and or week in um, some type of rehab. So reducing that length of stay even by, you know, a day, day and a half makes a big difference in those patients' rehabilitation. These patients also experience a shorter um, hospital length of stay overall. So in this study, it was 11.2 versus 14 and a half days. Um, and then they're also having a greater incidence of return to their independent functional status at discharge. And this one is really important. I think all of us have seen those patients who come into the ICU, they're vented, sedated for a period of time, um, they're immobile for a long period of time, and then, you know, they maybe they get trach pegged and sent to an LTAC facility, but before whatever incident happened that brought them to the ICU, you know, maybe they were able to get around with a walker or assistance. It's re really important that we can get our patients back to whatever their baseline mobility status was prior to coming to the ICU. And mobility has a really big piece in that picture. So we've talked some about the benefits to the early mobility process. I think it's also important that we discuss what research says happens if we continue to allow patients to be immobile while lying in bed, if we're, if we're not using a good mobility process. And I'm certain that many of you are familiar with and have seen and observed uh, some of them in your patients in the ICU. Physiologically, we're going to see things like decreased muscle strength, aerobic capacity, increased bone loss, and vasomotor instability. And what these things lead to are some pretty serious, um, or they can deteriorate into some pretty serious clinical manifestations and complications, um, which are certainly not ideal for your patients, like that deconditioning that we've seen, um, delirium that we just talked about, aspiration events, and, of course, pressure injuries and falls. And so, you know, really important that we try and prevent some of those complications. 
Here are just a few more. Um, these are published examples from research to kind of just further illustrate for you um, the, what those complications of immobility can be. So studies um, showed in one case that after a week of bed rest, muscle strength can just decrease as much as 20% um, with an additional 20% loss for each subsequent week. So that's pretty significant. Um, and like I said earlier, some of you guys may have already observed that in your patient population. Uh, bed rest and inactivity are contributing risk factors for neuromuscular weakness. Um, I've certainly seen that in the ICU population. Prolonged immobilization can heighten the risk for hospital-acquired complications like falls and pressure injury. So all these things kind of tie in together. And then hospital-acquired pressure injuries can lead to further debilitation and lead to increased length of stay and increased health care costs, um, you know, both of which are clearly problematic, but, um, you know, on the converse of what we talked about with um, benefits as far as reducing length of stay and then reducing costs. Now, as with any new process um, that you may implement in the hospital, there can be barriers to implementing early mobility in the ICU. You know, sure, it sounds great to promote a process, you know, that's known to be beneficial for our patient, but it's important for us to know upfront what things might make that process implementation a little bit more complicated so that we can be prepared with a plan to address those barriers. Um, you know, it's been documented that early mobility is safe and feasible in the ICU population, but the reality is many patients are not receiving early mobility interventions because of these real or perceived barriers at the patient provider or facility level. So it's really important for providers um, to view an early mobility program as an essential component of that care continuum. and. To do that, we need to address these barriers kind of head on. Um, so some of those most common barriers will include hemodynamic and respiratory instability, staffing, and equipment. Um, you know, one of the best ways to address some of these barriers um, with, is with an ICU support surface that offers continuous lateral rotation therapy, or CLRT, and that is a critical precursor um, to a successful early mobility program. And so it's going to be designed to promote mobilization of those pulmonary secretions, prevent those pulmonary complications, as well as helping train the patient's body to tolerate those gradual position changes. So when you have an ICU that's standardized with a fleet of support services and all of them offer continuous lateral rotation therapy, that therapy can really easily be implemented with just one staff member um, and can provide huge benefits to, um, you know, beginning that early mobility process and hopefully getting those patients off the vent sooner and out of the ICU faster. Um, in the picture, there is the, that is a striker isolibrium support surface that you see there. Um, this was a great example of a support surface with a really easy to use interface that integrates that um, CLRT um, or continuous lateral rotation therapy. On the previous slide, I mentioned um, using lateral rotation therapy as a precursor to early mobility. So here's a little bit more information for you about what that might look like in your patient population. Um, while a normal first step 
in early mobility might be having the patient sit up at a higher angle for a period of time. Many patients, particularly those who are on a ventilator, may not be able to participate in that first step yet, which is why CLRT is going to be recommended and has shown to have some really good benefits. Um, so, you know, we would consider lateral rotation therapy um, if it's appropriate for a patient and the goal would be to have them be in that lung over lung position, we want our hold times to be less than or equal to 10 minutes on each side. And then, you know, overall goal would be to use therapy for 18 out of 24 hours. Um, again, this is going to be supplemental to early mobility or used as a precursor, um, you know, clearly with a goal of helping prevent prolonged bed immobility. Um, excuse me there, and uh, we would consider this as a first step in that process. And so, um, you know, we would want to use this for the patient who is too unstable, really, to tolerate those more aggressive activities like that head of bed elevation that I mentioned just a minute ago. So your patient who maybe is new to the ICU unit, um, you know, recently vented, sedated, um, we would go ahead and start lateral rotation therapy on that vented, sedated, more unstable patient. Once your patient is ready for more advanced mobility activities, like sitting up or dangling their feet, sitting on the edge of bed, eventually standing and ambulating, your bed can actually be a really key piece of technology to help accomplish those tasks. So some facilities are actually moving toward a multi-acuity bed platform, like uh, the Stryker Proacuity, which is what you see here on the screen. Um, these types of bed frames offer models with specific features to meet the needs of the different levels of acuity in patients throughout that whole acute care continuum. And so certainly these can be a big part in the mobility process and helping patients return, like we talked about earlier, to their baseline functional status. Uh, the ZM model of this bed, which is the one you see there on the far right, you know, just as an example, this one is designed specifically with the ICU in mind, and it would integrate directly with that isolibrium mattress that I shared with you earlier. Um, it's important that you have a bed frame that meets the mobility needs of your patients, which is why the ICU model is able to power that continuous lateral rotation therapy in the, in the mattress, and also it's going to offer a good chair position to help with um, the ICU early mobility process. Now, as your patients do become more able to participate, in your mobility process, um, they might be able to progress beyond the continuous lateral rotation therapy and begin some of the more commonly used steps in mobility. Um, and those are going to be fairly similar across the board in acute care. One really easy way to remember these um, in their kind of like progressive nature is uh, very simply turn, sit, stand, and stroll. Um, so, you know, step one being turn, you know, we will begin with our patient in bed um, doing some mobility activities so they're not ready to progress toward ambulation because of their acuity or strength, um, but we're going to, you know, turn them on their side in the bed, for example. And the next step there will be sit. So having that patient to sit at the bedside, dangling, we hear it called a lot, you know, with their feet off the side of the bed. 
um, and that would be a safe precursor to doing any kind of weight-bearing activity, which is going to come in in step three, which is stand. So that would be practicing that weight-bearing, and but we're going to remain at the bedside uh, with the patient for safety, and that's going to allow for them to do that strength and balance building um, while we're still taking into account both patient safety and caregiver safety. And then the last step in the process might be stroll, which is when your patient um, would be able to safely ambulate, either with or without your assistance, probably beginning with moving toward without. Um, and that should clearly be done as frequently as possible for any patient who is able. And I say that because in the ICU world, and particularly with early mobility, some patients um, may still be on a vent, but able to progress to ambulation. And so this is a really good stride in getting them to heal faster and to wean more effectively from the vent. You know, obviously that's going to require a little bit more assistance um, for the patient, but certainly is an option and certainly should be considered for patients who are able to participate at that level of mobility. Um, so now let's talk a little bit more about the mechanics of actually getting a patient out of bed and how technology can help with that. So um, here's some examples of how, you know, the bed technology, like I said, can help with the mobility process. These are a little bit more technical, but it helps kind of paint that picture of, of what we're looking for. Um, so, you know, moving your patient from supine or lying to sitting, you know, that's going to require trunk flexion and rotation. And that can be achieved by using, let's say, your head of bed adjustment capabilities um, of your bed frame, you know, perhaps to a recommended 65 degrees. Um, that would be good uh, from, you know, that anatomical standpoint of, of that motion. And then, um, or an ergonomic standpoint, rather, my apologies. Um, and so, you know, we, uh, that also is going to encourage the use of the patient's upper extremities, you know, their arms and shoulder strength to complete that rise to the sitting position and the rotation of their trunk when they're pivoting their legs over the edge of the bed. And then we want to, when we want to go from a sitting to a standing position, it's important that we have an optimal seat height so that we can facilitate the standing process um, you know, which would be slightly above the knee height, um, and we want those feet flat and firmly on the floor. Um, you know, some, based on some ergonomic research, we've seen the average, you know, target height um, for that for men would be 21.3 inches, and it would be 19.49 inches for women. Um, so this bed frame, and, and this is still that striker Procuity, is actually designed specifically to meet the needs of those, the large population of patients so that it can best support those mobility programs within your hospital facility. You know, as we're talk, continuing to talk about getting those patients out of the bed or, or, or patient egress, as we call it, um, to encourage mobility, it's going to be important that your bed frame can help you easily achieve that proper height. Um, and has easy to access controls to do so. Um, this bed also has a patient assist button that's going to be on both of the side rails and that will automatically position the bed at an optimum egress height 
for the general population. And then, of course, it offers the ability to make those minor adjustments to accommodate smaller or larger patients who are a little bit outside of that average. Um, so this is a really important feature to have and to use, especially for those patients who may be struggling with mobility and just need that, that little bit of extra help that your bed technology can provide. Next, I want to talk about side rails because um, side rails are also a really important bed component for mobility. Um, you know, if your bed has an ergonomic side rail design, um, it would ideally offer accessible um, grab points. And those can help with mobility and safe bed egress, both for the patient and for the caregiver. So having a really well-designed side rail is going to allow your patients to use their hands and their arms in the process of standing, and that's going to further facilitate that task of standing. And ultimately, that can help improve safety and increase independence. And so what I mean by that is less lifting and risk for injury on behalf of the bedside caregiver and more strength building and independence building for our patients. Because, you know, remember, ultimately, our goal is to help those patients return to their baseline mobility status. Um, and this ProQuity bed frame actually does that by offering multiple different side rail grip point options um, for those patients as they get in and out of bed. Um, and so that, you know, that may enhance your mobility practice as far as considering, you know, the various um, sizes and shapes and varying de deficits that your patients may have that could contribute to difficulty um, with them mobilizing from the bed. So I hope by now uh, you can see that there are so many benefits of implementing an effective uh, mobility process in your facility, and those are both for the patients and for the facility and staff. You know, on the patient side of things, remember we're going to see shorter length of stay, reduced falls, improved outcomes overall, and improved quality of life, um, whereas on the facility and caregiver side, uh, we're going to see reduced caregiver injury, increased patient satisfaction, which we know is a really important metric, um, decreased hospital-acquired conditions. One of those um, hospital-acquired conditions we talked about as, is happy, um, but falls as well. And then, um, of course, financial savings. Saving money is always important to your organization. Um, hospitals are also businesses, um, so certainly reducing cost is important. Um, the benefits truly are numerous, um, no matter how you look at it, um, and I hope that you guys have been able to see that today. So here are the references um, that I used and spoke about throughout the presentation. I'll give you guys just a moment if you want to um, take a look at those. And I just want to thank you guys all again for listening. I do hope you learned something new today that you can take back with you to help improve your practice. And with that, I believe we are going to move on to a Q&A session. Thank you, Carly. And you're right, it's time for the Q&A session. So we have several questions here from the audience, and we'll try to get through as few as many as we can in the time that we have allotted. 
here's the first question for you. You mentioned the isolibrium ICU mattress. At what point would you need to move a patient off of that surface onto a rental or specialty surface? Thanks, Julie. Uh, this is actually a really great question. So um, with that um, isolibrium surface, it, it has those features that are designed to, you know, from a pressure redistribution standpoint, treat and prevent all stages of pressure injuries, including DTI and unstageable. Um, and the ability to provide that low air loss or microclimate management. So it really is designed for those higher acuity patients at all risk levels. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And um, in this case, you really don't need to do any renting. It's kind of like having a specialty surface for all patients. And in fact, that mattress is also backed by a 50% rental reduction guarantee for exactly those reasons. You know, it has the pulmonary features, it has the microclimate management, it has the pressure redistribution. You, you know, we want to, you know, make the work flow a little easier in the ICU, so there's there's really no need to actually take those patients off of that surface um, based on their risk level and move them to a different surface. Thanks. So here's another question for you. You mentioned the early mobility process and also discussed some features of your product that can help. How would you recommend integrating this or any product into an early mobility process? Uh, well, one thing that I would say here um, is it's important to, and I don't think I really talked about this during the webinar, but it's important to integrate the use of technology into your protocol um, to encourage compliance and correct usage. So I'd say that's thing number one is, you know, make sure you get that built into whatever your process or protocol is going to be. Um, you know, we, you can use the product with kind of each step or phase in that early mobility process, you know, starting with that continuous lower rotation therapy that we discussed, and then maybe moving toward using a chair position to, um, you know, we're going to elevate that head of bed, and then we move into using the chair position progressively, um, and we use that to evaluate, you know, is our patient ready to participate in more advanced steps in mobility? And then we talked about maybe utilizing that stand assist and preparation for actually getting out of the bed. But as we're going through each of these steps, you know, we're evaluating, is our patient going to be able to participate in the next step? Safely, And that's really the key uh, to successfully implementing early mobility is having your patient be participatory. And there's little components of the, um, the bed and the mattress that we can use to evaluate and then accomplish each one of those steps as we move forward. So it looks like we um, have time for only one more question. So here it is. Can you expand on the difference between a low air loss mattress and a regular air mattress? I love this question. Um, so thank you to whoever asked this um, because I actually get this question all the time. Um, so as we kind of talked about, low air loss is a feature of a mattress and it's specifically designed to provide a flow of air that helps manage the microclimate or heat and humidity of our patient. Um, what it is not is pressure redistribution. So pressure redistribution um, within the surface is a completely separate function. Low air loss can be included as a supplement 
um, to a lot of different types of surfaces um, that use different methods to redistribute pressure. For example, you can have surfaces that are using foam or air or gel to immerse and envelop the patient, and that's where your pressure redistribution comes from. But any of those could potentially utilize air for low air loss or microclimate management. So you really have to think about it in the sense of how's the mattress redistributing pressure and then whether or not it offers low air loss is just for microclimate management. So not every mattress that offers or support surface in general that offers low air loss for microclimate management is using air to redistribute pressure. I hope that answers the question and helps to clarify that one a little bit. Thank you so much, Carly. Thank you for sharing your time and your expertise today. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. Enjoy the rest of your day.